good afternoon everybody thank you all so much for coming i'm very excited about this particular episode because last last week we had nick majulli on the show and he had this wonderful book um, the book is called just keep buying and we discussed one chapter uh, from from his book so his book has two sections uh, one section is on saving and the second section is on investing and so we we took one topic from the saving section and one topic from the investing section and we discussed it and the topic that we took from the saving section was uh, this exact topic uh, should we rent a house or should we buy a house how do we think about making this financial decision and after the show i got a, a number of comments from from you saying uh, you guys would like to hear more about this particular decision and so uh, that's why i decided to make an episode that is entirely devoted to this question uh, should we rent or should we buy a house and uh, i think this this particular question it it deserves an episode of its own because if you look at it most of us uh, the single biggest financial decision we'll make in our lives is buying a house um so if if you if you assume that a house costs something like $500,000 in the US or something like that we we don't make uh, $500,000 decisions very often uh, maybe once or twice in our lives and that is likely to be associated with buying a house uh so it pays to devote some time to carefully think about this decision uh so let me start with my own perspective Uh, so i have been living in the us since 2009 i came to the us in 2009 in the middle of the great financial crisis and uh, i landed in california and i would walk down the the streets of california at the time i was a student and uh, this was right in the middle of the financial crisis and california was particularly hard hit during the crisis and so as i would walk down the streets i would see that every third house or every fifth house would have a foreclosed sign in in front of it and this had a powerful impact on me so essentially what uh, foreclosure means is somebody has borrowed money to buy a house and then for some reason they were not able to pay back uh, this money they were not able to make their mortgage payments or something like that and so the mortgage lender decided to take the house away from them that's what foreclosure means and this is a terrible experience uh, so uh, most people uh, if if they can uh, put a roof over their heads that is one of the first priorities so if if they get into foreclosure it means uh, they are probably in some state of financial ruin uh, and not just financially uh, foreclosure completely uproots your your whole family now you have to uh, find a way for your family to live you have to provide for them um, and it it's just such a terrible experience to be kicked out of your own house and so as i was walking the streets of california and thinking about these foreclosures and things like that uh, i sort of decided in my own mind that uh, as far as possible if i can help it i never want to be in that situation so i want to be very very deliberate about buying a home uh, i don't want to rush into anything 
uh, we want to have a very high degree of confidence that uh, it's the right house, it's the right decision for us, that we can afford it, that we will never be in this foreclosure position and so on. So uh, since 2009, I have been a renter. I have not bought uh, a house in the US. Uh, so I will I will get into why that is uh, uh, during during this episode. Uh, lots of people have told me, uh, look, you're paying rent every month, and if you instead of paying this rent, uh, think about how much you have uh, spent just in rent starting in 2009 all the way up to uh, 2022. Um, now, if you had just taken all this rent. Uh, suppose suppose I pay $1,000 a month in rent, just, just for an example. That, that's like $12,000 uh, a year. And even if you assume that it's only 10, 10 years or something like that, that's like $120,000 uh, that I have paid in rent over the years. And what do I have to show for this rent? Uh, I, I have nothing to show for this rent. It's just an expense and I have just spent it. Uh, so people say, look, instead of paying this money towards a rent, if you go and pay the same money towards the mortgage, then at the end of 30 years, you will have something to show for it. You will have a house and uh, that house will be yours free and clear. Uh, so why are you going and spending money on rent? Why don't you just buy a house? And there is some merit to this argument. There are lots of powerful advantages to home buying, uh, but it's not as simple as this. There are lots of financial considerations and lots of non-financial considerations as well that come into play. So it's not as simple as saying uh, with rent, it's just uh, flushing money down the toilet. You don't see any anything for it. Uh, whereas with uh, buying, you do see something at the end of it uh, because you own a home. It's not as, as simple as that. Uh, so what are the financial things that we should uh, worry about when we are buying a house? Well, so just like any financial decision, any, any financial decision, whether to uh, take debt, uh, take on debt, or whether to get a credit card, or whether uh, to buy a particular stock, it is always based on a series of cash flows. Um, so we have to look at the certainty of those cash flows uh, if, we were, if we have to get an idea of how to make that financial decision. So same thing with buying a house, uh, whether you're buying or you're renting, uh, you always have a series of cash flows and you have to reason about those cash flows. Uh, so for a renter, if, you, if you're going to rent a house, these cash flows, they are certain in the short term, but they are uncertain in the long term. Whereas if you're a buyer of a house, then the cash flows tend to be uncertain in the short term, but certain in the long term. Uh, let me explain that. So if you're a renter, uh, you sign uh, a lease contract or something like that. And so what the lease contract does is it, it tells you, okay, this is going to be your monthly rent for the next one year or one and a half years or some, something like that, whatever the term of the lease contract is. So that is a certain sum. If you signed a contract saying, I'll pay you, uh, I'll pay the landlord uh, rent for $1,000 a month or something like that, that $1,000 a month is not going to change during the life of the contract. So during the life of the contract, you have a certain degree of certainty. That is short-term certainty. But the problem is what happens when the contract expires? Most contracts are for um, one year or something like that, right, at, at the most. So uh, if, if the contract expires, then you will have to renew the contract and 
when you renew the contract there is a huge amount of uncertainty if there is a lot of inflation your rent could go up sharply uh, and things like that so you have short term certainty but in the long term you have uncertainty because of inflation and you don't know how much rent will go up over the years and so on so that that is the situation for a renter and now for a buyer so a buyer has a different set of expenses than a than a renter so for example if something breaks in the house so if you, if your uh, dishwasher breaks or uh, uh, there is some plumbing work that needs to be done or some electrical work that needs to be done for which you have to hire a contractor uh, things can happen suddenly when you have a house so you you can have all kinds of maintenance expenses that that suddenly come up and these maintenance expenses they they can be for several thousand dollars and uh, they they can show up suddenly and there's nothing you can do pretty much you you just have to spend the money to fix the house uh, that you're living in so for a buyer uh, you have short term uncertainty because you never know when these expenses will show up there is always some uncertainty in the short term uh, for a renter there's no such uncertainty because if something breaks in the house you just call your landlord and ask them to fix it uh, you don't have to fix anything yourself so uh, a renter uh, does not have to worry about home maintenance expenses and things like that whereas a, a buyer if you own the house you you have this kind of short term uncertainty but to compensate for the short term uncertainty you have long term certainty especially if you get a fixed rate mortgage so uh, for example if if say you you take out a 5 5% uh, uh, you take out a 30 year fixed rate mortgage at 5% interest or something like that okay so let's let's say you're buying a 500k house and you you put 20% down so that's 100k so for the remaining 400k you you take the mortgage and then when you when you take this mortgage if you if you Uh, pay a five five percent interest on this mortgage. Then uh, your monthly payment uh, on the mortgage works out to uh, something like two two thousand one hundred and fifty dollars or something something like that. And uh, the the annual payment will be some something in the range of twenty six thousand dollars. And that annual payment on this mortgage is never going to change because you have got a thirty year fixed rate mortgage. so you have long term certainty about the cash flows you this mortgage amount that you are going to pay every every month for your house uh, that is never going to change over the next 30 years if you get a 30 year mortgage so that is long term certainty whereas with a renter uh, you don't know your rent may increase after the first year or something like that uh, it depends on what rate you are able to renew your contract so that that that's why i say that renters have short term certainty but buyers have long term certainty uh so one one thing to do is to uh, just run the numbers uh, so when when you have a financial decision like this um should i should i rent or should i buy one one way to do uh, approach taking this decision is to just run a lot of different numbers so if i decide to rent a house how will my financial situation look like say 30 years down the line and if i decide instead that i want to buy the house now how is my financial situation going to look like 30 years down the line just run some numbers and then compare the two numbers to decide what to do so this is a very common approach to take financial decisions and so uh, what what are the important variables to consider so let's let's take two two people okay so i'm i'm going to call uh, the renter ralph 
and I'm going to call the owner of the house Omar. Uh, so R is renter and R is Ralph and O is owner and uh, O is Omar. So uh, let's say both Ralph and Omar, uh, they, they have a $100,000 salary right now. And let's say their salary is going to grow at a 5% at rate uh, for, for the next 30 years. And let's say both Ralph and Omar, they've saved up $200,000 uh, right now. And uh, Ralph is going to rent his house for the next 30 years, whereas Omar is going to buy uh, uh, his house. Now the question is, uh, who is going to uh, uh, be better off at, at the end of 30 years? Well, uh, let, let's say Ralph's rental expense is about uh, $2,500 per month. Uh, so uh, he, he's paying $2,500 a month in, in rental expense alone. And let's say uh, rent is going to go grow at a rate of 5% every year from now for the next 30 years. So each, each year, uh, Ralph is going to pay 5% more than the previous year, uh, simply because of inflation. And let's say all, all other uh, expenses uh, for both Ralph and Omar are exactly the same. They're, they're both going to spend $3,000 a month on all other non-housing related expenses. And let's say that these uh, expenses will also grow at 5% per month. These are just some simple numbers. You can run your own simulation with a different set of numbers and, and so on. Um, now, the question is, uh, what, what is Ralph going to do with this 200K? So Ralph also has 200K saved up. Omar also has 200K saved up. So what Ralph is going to do is he's just going to put this 200K into the stock market. Okay, so he's going to buy a diversified uh, S&P 500 index fund or some, something like that. Uh, so, and let's say th those stocks are going to give him a 10% return over the years. Uh, so, so Ralph is going to put 200K into the stock market and um, uh, his stocks are going to grow at 10% per year. And it's not just this 200K. Every year for the next 30 years, Ralph is going to make a salary, right? Uh, he has a 100K salary right now, and his salary is going to grow over the years. And he's going to have some savings over the next 30 years. And let's say he puts those savings as well uh, into the same stock market, and the stocks grow at 10% per year. Now, if you do a simple simulation of how Ralph's finances will look at the end of 30 years, well, in, uh, in, the, in the first uh, year, his, his salary will be $105,000 because it's, it's 100K plus 5% growth, so $105K. Uh, but he will spend uh, th about $31,500 on, on rent and $37,800 on other expenses and so on. So he, his savings will be about uh, $35,700. And these savings, he will put it into the stock market and, and so on. Uh, so if, if this thing, if you continue this simulation, what you see is at the end of 30 years, uh, Ralph would have uh, accumulated a net worth of $8.84 million if you just do this simple simulation. And this $8.84 million, it is all completely in stocks because Ralph doesn't own a house, he's just renting his house. And so this $8.84 million is in net worth is completely liquid. It is in his hands. And uh, so, what happens is at, at the end of those 30 years, if you look at year 31, let's say Ralph retires at the end of 30 years. And now at, uh, at the start of year 31, what, what will his annual expenses be for, for year 31? It turns out that his expenses will be something of the order of 300K per year. 
that that's what inflation does. Five percent inflation over over thirty years. Um, now now Ralph's expenses are are about three hundred k, but he has this eight point eight four million dollars of liquid net worth on which he's planning to retire. So what is his withdrawal rate? So the withdrawal rate is about 300K divided by 8.84 million times 100. That is the, the withdrawal rate. And that's about 3%. So if Ralph wants to finance his retirement 30 years down the line, uh, his withdrawal rate is going to be about 3.3%, some 3.4%, some, something in that range. Now, is that a good withdrawal rate or not? Well, if you talk to some of these fire experts, they will say that a 4% withdrawal rate is good. Anything under 4% is good. But uh, if you're withdrawing more than 4% of your portfolio in retirement, that's not good. Uh, so 3.4% is less than 4%. So if you look at it uh, through, through the lens of the 4% rule, uh, th then uh, Ralph seems reasonably well set with, with a fortune of $8.8 .8 million and expenses of 300K. But um, the 4% rule is not perfect. So uh, there are others who advocate uh, a 3% rule and a 2% rule and so on to be more conservative. So if you want to be more conservative, then uh, Ralph's finances will, will not let him be that conservative. So uh, there, there is a certain measure of uncertainty for Ralph in retirement, whether he's going to have enough money or not. Okay, so let's, let's now uh, turn to Omar. So what is Omar going to do? Omar has the same 200K that Ralph has, okay? But with this 200K, Omar is going to buy a house, or at least he, he's going to make the down payment on a house. So let's say uh, Omar has this, uh, uh, this house. He has found this house. The house costs 500K. Uh, he's going to pay 20% down. So he's going to pay uh, 100K down on the house. And uh, the, the rest, uh, the, the other 400K, he's going to take a mortgage uh, for it. And let's say uh, Omar's mortgage costs about 5%, which is what uh, mortgage rates are today, roughly. Um, so let's say Omar uh, has got a mortgage. He, he's going to pay, uh, he's got a 400K, 30-year fixed rate mortgage, 5% per year interest. Uh, but of course, when Omar goes and buys the house, what's going to happen is uh, there are always some closing costs when you buy a house. So people have to do inspections and appraisals and there is loan originations. And there's all these different kinds of closing costs that you have to pay when you buy a house. And let's say those closing costs are about 3% of the cost of the house. So about 15K in, in closing costs. So uh, 100K for the down payment, 15K in closing costs. So that's 115K just uh, for Omar to move into the house. Uh, and Omar has 200K saved up. So 200K minus 115K is 85K. So he's left with 85K. And this 85K, he let's say Omar puts it into the same stock market that Ralph puts it in. And so his stocks will also grow at 5%, uh, at 10% at per year for the next 30 years. Uh, now the question is, uh, with, with Omar, uh, he, what is his mortgage payment going to be? So, uh, so, so I, I said that the mortgage payment for, for this particular mortgage, 400K mortgage, 30-year uh, fixed rate at 5%, uh, Omar's mortgage payment is going to be about uh, 20, 26K per year. So Omar will pay 26K in, uh, in mortgage payments. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, I said that Omar is going to have some maintenance costs as well for his house. So Ralph doesn't have to pay any maintenance costs because he doesn't own the house. 
Omar, from time to time, he'll have to pay some maintenance costs. And most uh, real estate experts, uh, home home buying experts, they recommend that uh, you, you set aside about 1% of the value of the house each year uh, to cover maintenance costs. So let's say Omar is going to do exactly that. He's going to set aside 1% 1, 1 of his year, 1% of his home value each year to pay for maintenance costs. And um, let, let's, uh, let's say that his house, uh, once Omar acquires this house, the house is going to appreciate in value. So we are, we are assuming an environment where there's 5% inflation uh, because all, all expenses are growing at 5% uh, and uh, their salaries are also growing at 5% and so on. So uh, how much is Omar's house going to appreciate over the years? Well, let's say that Omar's uh, house will appreciate roughly uh, at 7%, slightly more than uh, the, the rate of inflation. Uh, so, so Omar has two sets of assets. He, he has a stock portfolio, which is growing at 10% per year, but he also has this house and the value of this house is growing at 7% at per year. Uh, now, the nice thing about Omar's uh, situation is that he doesn't have to worry that his rent will increase or his house housing expenses will increase other than the, the maintenance cost of the house. So his mortgage is going to remain fixed for the next 30 years. That's great. But the not so great thing is that just to get into this house, Omar ended up paying 115K of his 200K. So he now has only 85K in the stock market. He doesn't have the full 200K in the stock market that Ralph had. So uh, there, there, there are, there's the opportunity cost here. So when, when you buy a house, you have to make a down payment. And then whatever money you spend on the down payment and closing costs and all that, that is not money that you have available to invest in stocks and other things. So there is always an opportunity cost when you make this decision. And Omar has made the decision in favor of the house, but he has incurred this sort of opportunity cost. So now if you run a simulation of uh, Omar's uh, finances over the next 30 years, same rate of salary growth and same rate of growth of other expenses and so on, but uh, he doesn't have to worry about his mortgage increasing and uh, but he has to worry about home maintenance expenses. Now, if you do a simulation of Omar's uh, finances, it turns out that at the end of 30 years, uh, Omar will have a net worth of, uh, his net worth will be broken down into, into two pieces. So he will have a liquid net worth, which is in stocks and so on, but he will also have an illiquid net worth, which is the value of his house. So. Uh, Omar's net worth, it turns out that his liquid net worth will be $9.57 million, uh, which is higher than Ralph's liquid net worth, which is only $8.84 million. Now, how come Omar has a higher net worth than Ralph? It's very simple. Each year, Ralph has to spend more and more on rent, whereas Omar's uh, housing expenses are more or less fixed at his mortgage. So Omar is able to save more money over the years and all these savings go into the stock market and compound. And so as a result of this, Omar is able to accumulate a higher liquid net worth than what Ralph has at the end of uh, 30 years. And in addition to this, uh, Omar also has an uh, illiquid net worth, which is the value of his house. So if you assume that the house grows at 7% per year, the value of the house grows at 7% per year, then at the end of 30 years, his house will be worth about $3.81 million. So uh, if, if you look at his retirement expenses, uh, we said that Ralph's retirement expenses are about 300K per year. Uh, and, but a big part of that is 
uh, rent. Uh, at the end of 30 years, Omar's mortgage is fully paid off. So he doesn't have to pay uh, anything in terms of mortgage expenses. So his annual expenses at the end of 30 years uh, are only 200K per year, whereas Ralph's were 300K per year. And uh, he has 9.57 million in liquid net worth. So he's got about 47 times uh, uh, his his annual expenses saved up uh, in, in liquid net worth. And so his withdrawal rate for if Omar also decide, decides to retire at the end of 30 years, his withdrawal rate will be only 2.1%, whereas Ralph's uh, withdrawal rate in retirement will be about 3.4%. Uh, so it turns out that Omar actually comes out ahead. And this is the power of home ownership. Uh, so if you can borrow money, and uh, if you can pay off the mortgage over a pe period of time, then uh, this is uh, home ownership can be a very, very powerful way uh, to increase your net worth over the years. So a lot of homeowners, if, if you look at the wealthiest uh, people in, in America, the people who are uh, wealthy uh, tend to be homeowners uh, more than renters. Uh, and uh, so, Home ownership can confer um, this this degree of certainty in your cash flows, and that degree of certainty with a fixed rate mortgage that doesn't increase over a long period of time when every other expense is increasing, every other expense is subject to inflation, but the mortgage payment each month that is not subject to inflation if you get a fixed rate, and that is super powerful and that can help you uh, build wealth. So if you can get into uh, home ownership. If you can uh, buy a house, then uh, if you run the numbers and the numbers make sense, of course, if you pay too much for your house or something like that, then it's not a good idea. If you take on a mortgage that is far more, uh, that, that costs you far more per month than what you can afford or something like that, that's never a good idea. But if you play this game prudently, if you can allocate capital intelligently buying a house, off over the years, then that can be a powerful way to build wealth. So that, that's what uh, this, this uh, uh, simple set of numbers running these numbers shows. Uh, now, of course, if you uh, imagine that, uh, I mean, this is, this is only one particular set of numbers. You can always run a different set of numbers. So for example, if, if you assume that inflation is going to be more than 5% per year, so we assume that inflation will be 5% per year, what, what if inflation is more than 5% per year, then uh, rental costs are going to increase uh, at a higher clip than 5% per year, uh, whereas mortgage costs are not going to rise. So if, if, if inflation is going to be very high over the next 30 years, you want to be a homeowner, not uh, a renter. Um, the other thing you have to worry about is um, things like property taxes and, and so on. So um, I, I grouped the property taxes as, as part of the home home maintenance expenses. Uh, but if, if you have to pay a separate set of uh, property taxes and that um, uh, th that costs more in, in liquid net worth, uh, then you, you sort of have to worry about uh, how you're going to make those property tax payments. So for, for this reason, uh, it's actually not such a great thing uh, if you're living in a house and the house price appreciates a lot, then uh, frequently you end up getting a bigger uh, property tax bill, whereas your standard of life doesn't really improve. So if, if you had a, say, a four bedroom house or something like that, which you bought, and suddenly the value of the house is doubled, uh, 
how does that increase your standard of life? It's it's not like your house suddenly has eight bedrooms. Uh, it's just that the value of the house is doubled, but you're going to live in the same house in exactly the same way. So your standard of life has not really doubled uh, or anything like that. You're, you're just as happy living in that house as you were before the price doubled. But now you have a bigger property tax bill. So um, it's not such a great thing if the value of your house goes up. Uh, it's great if you want to sell the house. But then if you want to sell the house, you have to think about uh, where else will you go and live. And uh, whatever house you're going to buy to go and live, uh, that house's price might also have gone up uh, sharply. So then, then you have to worry about uh, whether you can um, buy that house, whether you can afford that house. And in the, in the meantime, you never know what mortgage rates have done. Uh, mortgage rates have incre- may, may have increased and, and that, that may uh, limit your flexibility and uh, to move and so on. Because when, when mortgage rates increase, what happens is if you sell your current house, and then go and buy a new house. Uh, the the problem is um, when you take out a mortgage to buy a new house, your monthly payments will increase because the mortgage rates have increased. So a lot of people, when they take out a mortgage, if the rates increase, it's something like a golden handcuff. Uh, they are chained to their house. They cannot sell that house and go somewhere and buy a new house uh, because they can't afford the payment on that new house when mortgage rates increase. But again, at the same time, if mortgage rates decrease, that's great because then you can refinance your mortgage. So home buyers have this uh, option that is built in uh, to their home. If mortgage rates decrease over time, they can always go and refinance their mortgage and save some money. And renters don't have that option, whereas home buyers have that option. So you, you, you have to have some view on whether mortgage rates are going to increase or decrease. Um, uh, <laughs> if, if they increase, they're not that great for you. But if they decrease, you can always refinance your house. So these, these are all some of the financial considerations that you have to take into uh, account uh, when, when you're trying to decide whether you want to buy a house or rent a house. And it's very simple. You just run the numbers, uh, see what, what's going to happen. Uh, run, run the numbers with a large number of different sets, uh, different numbers of uh, different amounts of assumptions and things like that. Um, so just just uh, get, get a rough idea for when it is better to rent a house and when it is better to own a house. For example, if the mortgage rate is very high, uh, then it may not be a great idea to uh, own the house. Or if you're a, a great investor like Warren Buffett or something like that, and you're expecting to make 25% in the stock market over the next 30 years, uh, you're, you're such a great investor that you can make 25% return per year, then it probably doesn't make sense for you to buy a house because uh, then uh, you will miss out on all the compounding uh, that, that the down payment will get you. So if you, if you take a big part of your uh, current net worth uh, and put it into uh, put it into a down payment for a house and the house appreciates at 7%. Whereas if you had just put that money into stocks, maybe you have the ability to get 25% per, per year return. If you are such a great investor, then it may not make sense for you to buy a house. So broadly speaking, these are all uh, the, the opportunity cost and the cost of maintaining the house and the property taxes and uh, the certainty of cash flows uh, for, for a buyer versus a renter. How is inflation going to be? Uh, what, what mortgage rates are. Uh, th- these are all the most important financial considerations that you have to take into account uh, when you try to make this decision of whether to buy a house or uh, to rent a house. 
Uh, so now, since I'm talking so much about the benefits of home ownership, you can ask me why didn't you go and buy a house yourself? Um, so you you've been renting since 2009. Uh, is is it because you're a great investor and you're you're making 25% per year? Uh, is that why you're not buying a house? Sadly, that's not the answer. Uh, I'm not making 25% per year <laughs> in in stocks or anything like that. Uh, the the main reason why I'm I haven't bought a house yet is uh, because I'm in this country. Uh, uh, as a, uh, my my immigration status in this country uh, is 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 not certain. So uh, so so when when you buy a house, uh, as as Charlie Munger likes to say, you you have to invert. So you have to think about all the things that can go wrong. So what what happens if I if I buy a house and then uh, the the U.S. government decides that uh, they don't want me living in the in this country, and so they they ask me to get out of the country. Uh, then uh, I, now I have a big problem on my hands. I have to sell this house, and who knows what the market will be at that time, and things like that. So um, th- that is the main reason why uh, I'm not buying a house because uh, my my immigration status is not certain. So in in general, uh, this is a good point about home ownership. Uh, if you're not confident of living in a house for a long period of time, then it's not a good idea to go and buy the house. And it's simply because there are all these opening costs uh, when you, when you, well, there, there are all these closing costs when you buy a house. And then there are also, uh, when you sell a house, you have to pay uh, the real estate agent and things like that. There is, there's a whole bunch of costs. So uh, it's, a, it's an illiquid asset and there are high transaction costs. So you don't want to be buying and selling houses very often. You want to do it as rarely as possible. So you can't do that unless you have a certain amount of flexibility. So if you're going to be buying a house and then selling it two years later in the in the short term, uh, th- there is a good chance that you'll lose money on the deal simply because the transaction costs are so high and uh, uh, home home prices historically, um, although in the last one or two years they've gone up fairly sharply. Uh, historically, home prices have not uh, uh, increased at such a high rate or anything like that. So, so these are uh, uh, some of the non-financial considerations that come into play. So, uh, how how stable is your life? Can can you be asked to leave the country uh, at at a moment's notice? In in that case, you may not want to buy a house. Uh, similarly, if if you cannot afford the mortgage payments. Uh, or if you feel that your job is not so stable or they may post you in a completely different state or something like that, you may have to pack up and leave at a moment's notice. Uh, if you don't have a certain degree of stability, uh, then it's it's better to be a renter than to be a buyer. Uh, so, so those are some of the non-financial considerations that go into uh, buying a house. Uh, so uh, th- this is pretty much all that I wanted to say. And if you, if you want to uh, read a little bit more about this, uh, you can read Nick Majuli's perspective on whether to buy a, or rent. Uh, so his book, as, as we did an episode, uh, Nick's book, Just Keep Buying, it, it has buying versus renting a house. Uh, so I, I recommend that uh, if, if you want, just get this book uh, and read it. It will give you more insights into this question. So uh, I'll be happy to uh, sort of take callers now. Oh, I, I have a question in the in the chat. What is the book title? The book title is Just Keep Buying by Nick Majuli.
and the other question is, uh, what happens if home values uh, decrease? Do, do taxes decrease as well? Well, uh, that is a little bit of a complicated question. So you have to get uh, an appraisal. And um, when, um, so when, when taxes increase, they're usually quick to increase your taxes. But when taxes, uh, but when home values decrease, they're not that quick to decrease your taxes. So you have to get a new appraisal and you have to convince them that your house is worth less and, and then they will take uh, lower taxes. But there is a certain amount of work that you have to do if, if you want to lower your tax bill. Okay, I'm, I'm not sure what is going on with Sylvia. So I'll, I'll take David, the next caller. And Sylvia, once you fix your issues with your um, mic, you may want to hop back in queue. Hello. Hello. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay, hey, um, I uh, just discovered your um, endeavors uh, recently and what really uh, kind of piqued my interest was your uh, interview with uh, Oswath Demodoran. And, uh, you know, this is not really a question, but, you know, I tell you, it's amazing that, you, he, that he, <laughs> how did you, how did you get him to uh, participate in your pod, your, 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 uh, your call-in uh, uh, you know, uh, work here. I mean, I, it's just, it's just incredible. I mean, I've been following this guy for, uh, for many years. I've taken his courses and, uh, I just was, uh, when I saw that, I said, okay, this guy I have to listen to. So, you know, thank you for setting that up. And I think that's just, uh, an amazing thing that you, you did. So that's just uh, one point I wanted to, uh, pass on. I think it's a great endeavor that you're involved in. In terms of home ownership. Oh, thank you so much. I mean, this is, yeah, yeah, no problem, man. I mean, I should be thanking yeah, you. Yeah, with that other than I, I got lucky. He's he's one of my heroes <laughs> as well, and uh, yeah. So uh, I, I I got lucky. Uh, so so uh, the the people uh, in the, in the Colin app, I, I work with those people uh, who yes who maintain and develop the Colin app. Mm, and I see. Uh, one of one of them knew Aswad Damodaran, and uh, so uh, was able to uh, get him to come on the show. Um, but but it, I, I just got lucky there. Yeah, you know it's amazing. I like I said, I've I've followed his work for many years. I've used his textbooks, etc. And uh, you know, I think his his valuation, uh, you know, philosophy is, is 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 spot on. But what was really interesting in your in, in when he was on your show, I mean, he you really got him to speak frank. He's always very frank, but I thought he was particularly frank <laughs> in some of the discussion, especially around ESG. It was quite interesting. But uh, anyway, oh, yeah, I just absolutely. I just wanted to mention, yeah, 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 yeah. But you know, I tell you, when it comes to home ownership, um, right. you know, this is something that I, I've looked at over the years, and you know, trying to figure out how to value a home, how to think of it uh, as a kind of a part of your portfolio. Which you know, I don't even know if that's the right way to think about it, of a home. You know, a lot of people say that a home. Is, is, is a consumption item and you really shouldn't think of it as an investment or as, as part of your portfolio. I, you know, I don't know the answer. I'm not going to pretend to know the answer, but I try to think of it as part of a, uh, an extension of, of an overall uh, portfolio, including human capital and everything. Whether that's right or wrong is open to discussion. But if you do think of it as part of a portfolio, I was just wondering how you would view home ownership. And uh, th these are some of the concepts that I've, I've pondered over the years. One is the tax benefit. And I'm not talking about the tax deductibility of interest. I'm talking about the um, you know, capital gains. I mean, basically, the government doesn't tax inflation on a home, right? Up to 500000 for a couple. And also, you know, you 
the imputed rent, right? Which if you try to intrinsically value a home, the imputed rent is not taxed, right? So those are benefits of home ownership. And then the question is, is a home, do you treat it like a bond? Do you treat it like a stock? You know, do you treat it as a big, idiosyncratic, undiversified asset? You know, what opportunity, you mentioned the stock market as maybe kind of like using that as an opportunity cost. I'm not so sure that is correct. And the other, the other issue that I, I don't know if there's an answer, but, you know, the, uh, this idea of equivalency, right, is, is home, if you take out a massive mortgage to own a home, isn't that, you know, isn't that like renting, essentially? I mean, isn't there some kind of like equivalent from an economics perspective, an equivalency there? Because, you know, you're either you're, you're leasing the asset indirectly via the bank or you're or you're, you know, paying rent directly to a home, uh, to, a, to a landlord. So, you know, I, I think this whole idea of home ownership is, is, can be quite complex, right, and very difficult to, uh, to uh, categorize. So uh, these are some of the ideas. I, I don't mean to throw them all at you at once, but, you know, I, I think you covered some of these, but this whole idea of, like, thinking of it as part of your portfolio, opportunity cost, you know, the tax benefits, the fact that it's not diversifiable, the fact that it's illiquid, friction costs are high. I think, you know, yeah, home ownership is, 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 you know, everybody kind of views it as a positive, but I, I wonder. So I'll leave it there. Sorry for rambling. But the uh, main reason for the call is to thank you. And uh, I think you're doing a great job. And then if you could just kind of maybe discuss some of those issues I mentioned about home ownership, it'd be great. Thank you. Right. Any right. questions? Well, <laughs> so portfolio uh, theory always looks at all the other assets that you're going to have in the portfolio and how they are correlated uh, to, mm. uh, to each other and things like that. And uh, so it's not just looking at each individual asset on, on its own. So for example, if, mm. uh, you, if you don't have a home, if, if you decide to rent instead, mm. what happens if rent uh, increases a whole lot on you? Uh, so after your lease contract expires, whatever rent increases over the years because of inflation, and as a result, you're not able to grow your portfolio at a fast rate simply because you're not able to add enough capital to the portfolio mm. over time. So mm. there, there are these these kinds of risks uh, as well associated with renting, which, which are not so much the case when it comes to owning. But the issue here is, should you look at uh, home ownership? Should you look at the value of your house as part of your net worth or not? Uh, is, is is that part of your portfolio and do you, um, so, so if your house is worth $1 million and your portfolio is worth another $1 million, do you consider your net worth to be $2 million or $1 million? So in general, if you're never going to sell an asset, then you don't really care what the market price of that asset is, is going to be. So there are these models where you buy a stock and then you never sell the stock. And so what will your return be over time? Uh, so for those those types of returns, what happens is what matters to your return is just the earnings, cash flows and dividends of the company. The market price of the company is irrelevant because you're never going to sell the stock. Right. So if you think of a home as something like a permanent uh, part of your portfolio or a permanent part of your assets, then if you're never going to sell it, then the, the price in the market is kind of irrelevant to you. Uh, your, your your standard of life doesn't go up or down uh, mm. as your home price increases or decreases. Mm. So, 
um, and and it's not a liquid part of your net worth. It's, it's not like if if the if the price goes up sharply, uh, you can sell off a bedroom or something like that. It, it it's uh, it, it's an indivisible kind of asset. Uh, it's not a liquid asset, and so unless you plan to sell the house and move to a cheaper house in some other state or something like that, uh, the increase in the value of your house does very little for you. Hmm. So I prefer to uh, structure my finances in in such a way that the home is not going to be a big part of our assets or anything like that. Uh, so I, I want to have enough liquid assets in addition to the home uh, that that you know I I can pay off uh, property taxes, I can live off of those uh, liquid assets, things like that. I, I don't want lot of my network to be tied up mm. in in the value of the house uh, because yeah. that does very little for me uh, yeah. of course it's true that if if the house is suddenly worth a lot i i can go and borrow money against the house and things like mm. that uh, mm. but then i have to have a plan for paying it back and yes. if I, if i put that borrowed money into a stock and the stock crashes or something like that now, now i'm in deep soup so so, yeah. uh, so so in in general um, you know if if i own a stock and the stock doubles i'm very happy but if i own a home and the home doubles i'm not that happy yeah yeah no that's very rational and uh you know i don't think there is there's a definitive answer but what i tell you one thing i've noticed is that the the industry the banking industry the real estate industry the brokerage industry they want you to own a home right and oh, yeah. uh you know that's something that i've always been kind of somewhat you know i you know i think people want to help you generally but i've been skeptical of that and the other thing that i would just mention and i'd love to hear your commentary on this and oh, by the way if i'm if i'm just taking too much time just tell me and i'll stop <laughs> but uh but um you know this whole well, idea, I have time <laughs> okay so this whole idea with you know this the interest rates are low therefore it's a good time to buy a house you know i you have to think who's you know i think you've brought this up before but this whole idea of you got to think who's on the other side of the trade right and right. the people that are offering these rates are not stupid right so you know you wonder in a loose sense who's who's benefiting from the arbitrage right who's pricing the risk correctly right so i right. i think i'd love to hear your opinion again who i mean don't you think it's a bit misleading to just say okay interest rates are at historical nominal lows or real rates are at low low levels therefore it's a great time to buy a house i i find that a bit um you know something that you need to ponder very carefully so i'll leave it there but you know again i think you're doing a great job and uh, i think this is this is a tremendous service you're offering i think it's a it's a win win for everybody so uh, thank you but if you yeah, if you if you want to address that la- those last two uh, issues that'd be great yeah absolutely absolutely so uh, there are two points that i want to make so when you buy a house on leverage uh, so you're saying in- interest rates are low uh, so so it's a good idea to uh, take that leverage so that is the common argument yes uh, but the benefits of leverage uh, sort of go both ways so uh, let let me explain uh, how Uh, so let, let, let's say you have a 500k house that that you want to uh, buy and uh, let's say you put 100k as as a down payment and the other 400k you you have to take a mortgage for it you, even if you pay a 5% interest rate uh, on that 400k mortgage your uh, annual mortgage payments come out to about 26k per year and if you think about it 
if you can get a 10% return in the stock market say then how much money do you have to put aside in the stock market so that you can make this 26k payment per year to own the house so uh, if if you do that analysis uh, you you have to put 260k in stocks because you get a 10% return assuming that you get a steady 10% return from the stock market uh, which is not a great assumption but let's let's just go with it for this example so mm. if you put 260k in stocks uh, and you get a 10% return you can take out 26k every year right so how much do you need to actually buy this house you need to put 260k in stocks and you have to make a 100k down payment so that's 360k in all so the question is does the house cost 500k or does the house cost only 360k right yep. <laughs> so so yep. if, if 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 all you need to do is to set aside 360k right now and you have enough money to buy the house then the house costs you 360k it doesn't cost you 500k even if 500k is the sticker price on the house so that that is the power of of leverage being able to borrow 400k of money uh, mm. from someone else at a 5% interest when you can generate a 10% return uh, on your investments so that 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 is something that you have to take into account when when you look at interest rates it's you shouldn't just look at interest rates in isolation you should also look at how much you can get uh in uh in other places like stocks and other investments and so on so opportunity costs are are very real the the second thing i would like point out is uh, when interest rates go low typically what happens is it's a supply and demand game and so many more people uh, are now able to afford the monthly mortgage payment and so now there is a lot of demand and uh, uh, the supply is more or less constant uh, or increasing at a very slow rate compared to the demand and so uh, the price will increase so hmm. this is a second order uh, effect so when when interest rates increase it's not like if if you can buy a house at the same price then it's great if if it if interest rates go down then uh, you really really benefit from buying that house mm. but just because interest rates go down it's not necessarily a good idea to buy a house because the house price may have gone up significantly yes. so there is a second order effect here mm. uh, uh, so, so you have to consider that as well yeah no it's so important and uh, you know there's just there you know this phrase there's no free lunch is overutilized but i think it's a very powerful assumption you know i mean i, I you know professor demoderen talked about you know markets are definitely not efficient but they tend to move towards efficiency in a random way you know you know <laughs> all markets kind of do this right you know you may get right, exactly. I, I mean yeah so this is this is so powerful right and i think that you know with when it comes to a lot of financial uh decisions uh this whole idea of of you know dynamic equilibrium asset prices you know you there's no free lunch i think it's a very very powerful uh concept but you know i have to say this will be my final comment you know i must say i know you're a computer scientist by training and you came to finance later and uh i through my experience you know it's not not that exceptional but i've 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 worked in finance and uh you know i find that that is the best path to get to finance right and i can see it in the way you explain things right you know you're just you're it's like you you look at finance like you're writing a computer code and i think that's the way to think about it so anyway thank you so much for taking my my ta- my call and i appreciate your commentary and uh good luck with this uh 
with this project. Thank you. Okay, thanks for the kind words, David. All right, man. Take care. Okay. So the the next caller is Morley Khan. Hello, Morley. Uh- oh, this has been just a fantastic call, by the way. And your your exchange there with David was uh, was really excellent as well, by the way. And oh, I so do much. echo David's David's thoughts. People with computer science background, because I happen to be in the finance industry as well, and I'm just envious of people with computer science backgrounds because of the way they look at things, the way they break down problems and find solutions. I am very envious. And then my main question is also about about paying down the mortgage early. And if someone is in a position of paying down their mortgage and instead of investing, you know, putting paying off the mortgage instead of uh, putting that money, I guess, in in the stock market or some alternative investments. I I guess when all is said and done, if you have, if you're going to earn 25%, and few of us can, uh, compounded for years, then it probably does not pay to pay off the mortgage. But if not, it might make sense to pay off the mortgage. And I was curious to know your thoughts on that. Oh, absolutely. It, It depends strongly on the rate of interest that you're paying on your mortgage. So if you uh, cannot earn that rate of return uh, in stocks or any other uh, place, then your best move, uh, financially speaking, is to pay off your mortgage. But there are people who have a very low interest mortgage uh, or who had a very low interest mortgage, but they still elected uh, to pay it off, even though uh, the S&P 500 is growing at a much faster rate than the rate of interest uh, they are paying on their mortgage. And uh, so, for example, we had Brian Feroldi on on the show, and he completely acknowledged that this is not a financially rational decision. If you you look at it purely from a a financial perspective, it's not rational to pay off your mortgage if you can get a higher return on some other investment uh, if the opportunity cost is is not there. Uh, But uh, Brian says that it helps him sleep better at night uh, and you know, it, debt is always dangerous. And if, yes. if you don't want to have that debt on your balance sheet, uh, if, if you just want to pay it off and own your home free and clear, uh, if, if you can get a certain degree of mental satisfaction uh, from that, uh, then it, it may it may not be a bad idea to pay off uh, your mortgage if it helps you sleep better at night. And Brian also made this additional point that once he paid off his mortgage, his stress levels were uh, a lot lower. And that helps him make better decisions with the rest of his money. Uh, so so there, there are these intangible things as well, uh, which don't feature into a purely financial calculation. But a lot of people have told me that they have uh, found it very satisfying to pay off their mortgage. Now, uh, to me, uh, I, I don't think it makes a big difference. So as long as I have the ability to pay it off at any time, um, so it, it really doesn't matter to me whether I have, so, so if, I, if I have 500K of liabilities and $1.5 million of assets, my net yeah. worth is still $1 million. Or if I have zero liabilities and $1 million of assets, my, my net worth is still $1 million. So as, as yeah. long as I have the ability to pay it off anytime I want, I don't really think uh, it's, it's that, that uh, I, I don't think I'd, I'd be very... 
I don't think I, I'd pay off the mortgage uh, early yeah. just just for the mental satisfaction. I, I don't think it'll give me a whole lot of extra mental satisfaction to to pay it off. In fact, you know, if if I'm irrational about it, that will irk me far more. I think. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, thank you very much. This has been a it's been a great call, and I've really enjoyed the uh, uh, the previous all of your previous calls. So thanks again. Oh, thank you so much. Take care. The, the next caller is uh, Team Frugal. Hello. 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 Hey. Uh, hi, Tanke. Um, yeah. Uh, hey. Uh, thanks for uh, doing all this, uh, especially your uh, Twitter thread and uh, the recent uh, initiative on uh, money concepts. And uh, though uh, it's a little late uh, in the country which I live in, uh, I uh, listen to the money concepts after uh, the live episode is done and uh, uh, I was listening to your options uh, uh, talk, uh, the explanation yesterday and uh, it is pretty uh, clear and uh, the scenarios that you have taken and uh, when you uh, do the call, put and uh, other options and uh, your personal experience with options. So all that uh, was uh, really great. Uh, thank you for uh, so all your time spending in uh, uh, explaining things in very uh, simple manner. Oh, thank thank you very uh, much. Hey, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, which is related to the current uh, topic which we are in uh, regarding the uh, house uh, ownership versus uh, uh, renting. Um, I happened to listen to this uh, particular Google talk on um, the real estate, uh, 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 which is called a Destination Perpetuity, which is, uh, there's, there's on, uh, also a book in the same name, which is, I think, by a person named uh, um, Craig O. Uh, Rourke, uh, and uh, he talks about how uh, uh, housing ownership or multiple such housing ownership uh, uh, helps an investor achieve uh, financial uh, freedom and uh, that but, but but all such kind of uh, uh, let's say um, uh, uh, the debate uh, always centers around uh, the piece that you mentioned just before uh, whether how uh, uh, one is comfortable with uh, using uh, the debt to achieve that uh, uh, purpose and uh, even in destination perpetuity the uh, speaker clearly uh, says that uh, okay this you can achieve because uh, you are financing a large uh, portion of your house by spending only uh, some part in uh, equity and uh, uh, that's something which uh, uh, Brian Fraldi he uh, might not have been comfortable with and maybe uh, personally I might not be uh, comfortable with uh, taking such kind of uh, debt but uh, there, there is no other asset class which would actually uh, give uh, somebody um, that that high uh, debt to go ahead and purchase that uh, asset in that way uh, yes it has an advantage but uh, uh, personally I think I am uh, in the same position as you where uh, I might be a uh, uh, little wary of uh, taking uh, debt uh, to uh, finance uh, an illiquid uh, asset but I think this uh, 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 the view changes from person to person depending on uh, what uh, situation one finds in. I think uh, uh, at the end of the day, we cannot put a number uh, to it and then address it uh, completely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so there are, so, so there are, 
Oh, actually, can oh, you mute actually, yourself, please? You I can hear my own voice. I can hear my own voice as an echo. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah. Uh, so each person has a different amount of debt tolerance. So if if you look at somebody like Nassim Talib, for example, he says he has never taken one dollar of debt in his life. He he has never borrowed money. He he doesn't have a credit card. Nothing. So he he's got zero debt tolerance. Uh, uh, but but if you take somebody who's more normal, they they might be perfectly fine uh, taking on a mortgage uh, to to buy a house. So so each person's level of debt tolerance is is different. Um, the other thing that that's super important is your ability to service the debt. So if if you take on debt today, that debt is always uh, it it comes with a series of cash flow obligations. So for example, in the case of a mortgage, you might have to pay $3,000 a month or something like that for the next 30 years. So that is a financial commitment that you're making. And you have to be reasonably confident that you, you can continue to make those mortgage payments for those 30 years. Otherwise you can lose the house. So um, uh, you, you have to have some degree of confidence that you, you can service the debt whenever you, you take on debt. Uh, and yes, the other point is also uh, perfectly valid that you can't really take advantage of leverage in your personal finances in any other way other than to buy a house. Most, most people can't. Um, this, is, this is a great point. You, if, if you take on uh, a loan and then go and use that money to buy stocks or something like that, uh, that, that is very risky. You can be margin called and, and things like that. So uh, if you want to take on a loan and go and buy an asset that uh, hopefully appreciates over time, uh, home ownership is one of the few avenues that lets you do that. Of course, you can take on a loan and use it to buy a car or something like that, but but then that would be a depreciating asset. And if you want to take, take a loan and take advantage of the leverage for uh, appreciation purposes, then home ownership is, is one of the few ways to do it. Uh, but uh, look, uh, companies can do all this. Um, they, they can take advantage of leverage to do a lot of things. Uh, so if you take a company like Starbucks or Home Depot or something like that, they, they've got lots of debt on the balance sheet. So they can take on debt uh, to uh, fund expansion uh, or to fund stock buybacks or all, all these other things, right? So it's, and if you are a, a shareholder of Home Depot or Starbucks, you get the benefit of that leverage through an indirect ownership of this company. So uh, in a corporate structure, in a, within a company, they can take advantage of leverage to amplify the returns they get on the equity portion of their capital. And shareholders of these companies can benefit from that. But if you want to benefit in a personal capacity from taking on leverage, then home ownership is one of the few ways to do that. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, Hello. Who oh, man? Hey, ten K. Can you hear me fine? Uh, yes. Now, now I can hear you. Uh, th thank you. You earlier mentioned that because of your immigration status you are not buying a home. Is right. that the same for your 401k? Um, I don't understand how, how the 401k has any, anything uh, to, to do with the, with the home ownership. Uh, uh, true, true. I mean, it's a off-topic question. Uh, 
because of immigration status should one put money in 401k i should have worded my oh, question oh right 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 Sorry. well uh, that that is an interesting question so in a in a 401k typically when you if you withdraw money before you turn 59 and a half uh, then you have to pay a penalty on the uh, withdrawal right <laughs> uh and if if you if you're not going to live in this country for that long uh, if if you're suddenly kicked out or something like that uh then you may want to take that money with you and so withdraw it before you turn 59 and a half and if you do that you will have to pay a penalty on that uh but at the same time uh with most uh employers or, or with a lot mm-hmm. of employers when you make a contribution into a 401k they also match the your contribution so if if you contribute $100 into the 401k your employer may put in $50 so yep. so that's like a like an immediate 50% return uh, that you get on that $100 that you put in right so uh yes you have to pay the 10% penalty when you get out uh, when when you take the money out so if you put in $100 um and the, the employer pitches in with another $50 so so you now have $150 in the 401k and when you take it out you you may have to pay a 10% penalty or something like that so that's $15 so um, you will be left with $135 of pre tax income but that's still better than taking the $100 of pre tax income from your employer uh, so so it might make sense to contribute to a 401k uh, even with your immigration uh, status uh, simply because you get a match uh, from your employer which is like an instant return that compensates for the penalty that you have to pay so in in that sense of 401k and uh, home ownership they may not be the the same thing because there's no uh, you know I, at least as far as i know there's no employer who you know uh, who who gives you some extra money when you buy a house or something like that <laughs> true, true. perfect answer thank you thank you let me take the next caller uh, who's ajay okay sorry yes hello okay um hey first of all thank you um i can just say your discovery of my life let's put it this way during covid and um and and what you do and has i pretty much told every one of my friend to please um you want to learn something about anything about finance or anything about investment you are the person to go to uh, well, you, thank you you, you, you are so kind you, no i'm not i mean it, it i think i have texted you in private many times and i asked questions so this will be my first question but anyway coming back to the main topic thank you um in terms of diversification right i mean isn't right. isn't home, home home ownership actually it's it's i know it's a, it's not a, it's not a, a liquid asset it's an illiquid illiquid asset but what do you think i mean also when it comes to like children's education right when you take education loan and stuff and all doesn't like a home ownership at an earlier time you know before having kids by by time 10 20 years down the line when kids are going to school it it gives you a kind of a, 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 a an asset they can tap into um um other than just the stocks or or 529 or other plans right just like it's a backup plan as we say like well i'm from india so like 30 to 40% is something we always have to make sure we have in our pocket um even though we may there might be an opportunity cost to that but it is something that right. that, that that's so like a I'm not exactly it's, it's sure like a, yeah uh, how how does the uh, the education uh, children education how, how does that conflict with with home ownership well in the in the US actually uh, well there are some school districts that are 
very good. And if, right. if you want your your child to go to that particular school or something like that, you right. will have to live in that school district. So you have to buy a house uh, in in that district, or or you have to rent a place in in that district. Uh, so so oh, in that sense, about, yeah. Yeah, uh, home ownership can impact the the quality of education your your children receive and and so on. Uh, I'm not sure how it is in in India. Uh, I was I was I was I was specifically looking at college, right? I mean, for example, if a right. college, right? The when you, you can take a loan or you can take a, like a, like a, the, you can tap into the asset here in the house, right? Whatever value of building the house, there's an interest rate to that, which might be cheaper than taking education loan out um, to fund for the kids. And maybe not in the primary house, but on an investment property, for example. Oh sure. So so you're saying you 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 can take a loan against the property, and that might be cheaper to fund your kids' education. Right, rather than paying a compound interest on on your um, on the education loans, right now what like a trillion dollar, two trillion dollars right off they're talking about uh, in the whole U.S. right now. Which, right, which right. Is there, there is a lot of student debt in in the U.S. right now. Sure, if yeah. if you do have an uh, another investment and you you can borrow against that investment to fund your uh, kids' education, then that that's great. And if if you can do that in a cheap way, uh, that that's good. But you know, when, when you fund your kids' education, there's always a, uh, if you fund it in this way, then uh, you are on the hook for uh, paying back the loan that you took against Correct. your your house, right? Correct. Uh, but Correct. the benefits of the loan kind of, uh, they, they go to your children, they don't go to you. <laughs> so, <Correct. laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so if you still want to do that, uh, it, it's yeah. almost like an expense uh, uh, from a from a purely financial standpoint. Correct. Uh, Correct. It, it, it's like you're you're taking out a loan to fund an expense, not not an investment, because it's it's an investment in in your kids' education. Um, right. Which, right. Sure. Which which to me looks like 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 intangible asset as a parent. Okay, <laughs> so we got a peace <laughs> of mind that all right for the kids. Now, but because right. I look at all the portfolios of all the rich people, or the top one percent, or top two percent in this country, real estate seems to play a big role, um, at least in significant amount of um, um, uh, the top one percent. Um, is that am I have a wrong analysis, or is is a wrong data point? Well. Um... I am not sure how wealth is distributed, and it, it, it's true okay. that you know if if you if you look at the very top, uh, people at the mm-hmm. very top, uh, a significant fraction of them own real estate, um, mm-hmm. but I don't know what fraction of their net worth is tied up in that real estate. So okay, uh, fair point. You know, mm-hmm. Bill Gates mm-hmm. has been you know go, going around buying acres and acres of farmland yes. and, and so on. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. But what what fraction of his net worth is that? Uh, that that may not be a very big fraction in in spite of all the money he's spending <laughs> doing these things. So. Correct. Right. Correct. Correct. I mean, as I said, as a diversification. That, that, that's all. My point was all from diversification. Like, how do we diversify as 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 investors, as long term right, right. investors? Uh, um, absolutely. Yeah. So diversification uh, from a diversification standpoint, uh, housing uh, or Real real estate may be uh, a good option to diversify against uh, just stocks and other other kinds of assets. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, when, whenever you look at diversification, you should always try to achieve uh, either negative correlation or zero correlation. 
So uh, if, if you own multiple assets and they all move together at the same time, then you're mm -hmm. not really diversified, no matter how many assets you may own. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. So, yeah. and housing, um, uh, well, in, in the last crash, what happened was it was, it was the, uh, in the 2008-2009 crisis, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. it, it was a housing crash that uh, precipitated a, a sort of a broader uh, <laughs> uh, crash Meltdown. in the market. Broad, broad, so in that right. particular crisis, mm -hmm. um, asset prices, uh, home home prices and real estate prices and uh, uh, stocks, they, they all crashed at the same time. So uh, you did not get much benefit if, if you were diversifying into, into real estate or something like that at, at that time. But there have been other kinds of crises where uh, owning a home has been beneficial from, purely from a uh, diversification. Owning real estate has been beneficial purely from a diversification standpoint. Um, but so, then there's also the question of whether you consider your primary residence uh, to be an asset uh, that that you want to hold in a diversified portfolio or something like that. So if, if you're never going to sell that asset, if you're just going to live there, then uh, how how far how, how much do you consider it as an asset as part of your portfolio and things like that? So so with investment properties, I totally understand the the diversification right. argument. Right. But the argument yeah. is not so strong if, uh, if if you're thinking about it from uh, for a primary residence. No, that's that's a brilliant. I think David brought out the same point, and I, I think right. I that I agree. I used to think calculating net worth. I mean, if on assets and liabilities, okay, your primary house goes in the asset and the mortgage and liabilities. But you need a house to stay, no matter where you are. You need one house, which you always need. You may have three houses, but one house you, that one house cannot be count. At least to me shouldn't be counted as if I sell everything, then where do I stay, right? As a family, I need a, uh, I, I, I need stability. So the million right, exactly. dollar question to you is, there have been what, eight or nine recessions in the history uh, of, of the country, uh, maybe more, I'm not sure. How do you achieve um, a zero or negative correlation as an asset class, as an investor? Like right now in this, maybe we're going to a recession, maybe we are not. But what would be your, I don't know, your opinion how do we, as investors we diversify and right. and maybe not get a 20% returns but make sure we don't get negative 5% returns or, right. or less than 0% returns and still be able to beat the inflation because sitting on cash we are losing 7% right now on right. cash so sure so and so, i so yeah i, I Barik Patel had this tweet <laughs> recently saying that you know instead of losing 8% a year uh, to inflation, if you just put the cash in the stock market, you can lose 80% per year. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so uh, yeah, so, but tongue-in-cheek tongue, tongue in cheek aside, uh, how do you diversify in a way that, uh, that doesn't get you a negative return over time? And mm -hmm. th that's a very interesting question. And that the answer to that sort of depends on your uh, time horizon. So mm. uh, if, if you're going to, uh, if, if you're only concerned about the next 10 years or something like that, uh, mm -hmm. if, if you just dollar cost average into an index fund or something like that, you, you may mm -hmm. do very well uh, in, in mm -hmm. spite of, uh, so you're buying a diversified asset because the index fund itself is diversified, but mm -hmm. the, the stocks held in the index fund are not all that negatively correlated or anything like that. They usually tend to move uh, up or down together, but you may still mm -hmm. be fine uh, simply because your time horizon is that long. Now, mm -hmm. if, if you want uh, to not even 
have one year of negative returns, uh, then you may have to opt for some more esoteric strategies uh, to, to right. get the benefit of uh, diversification. Uh, so, mm. so even if the market goes down, you don't want your portfolio uh, to go down. And uh, so, so you, you have to construct essentially what is a market neutral portfolio or, or even mm. uh, a, a portfolio that's negatively correlated to the market if you believe that the market is going to uh, go down. Mm. Uh, now, uh, there are lots of people who've written uh, um, uh, written a lot of very smart things about how to construct such portfolios. So one, mm-hmm. one such guy is uh, is a guy called Ed Thorpe. He has this mm-hmm. series of articles on, on statistical arbitrage and uh, how he thinks about market neutrality and, and things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Then there is this guy called Mark Spitznagel, uh, who mm-hmm. talks about buying portfolio insurance. So essentially, you, uh, in, in addition to the stocks that you own, you also spend a, uh, a small fraction of your portfolio each year buying put options on the index or something like that. And if you do that, then uh, in, in nine out of 10 years, those put options may actually end up expiring worthless or, uh, uh, or uh, losing value as you roll Correct. them over. But okay. in one of those 10 years, when the market uh, crashes big time, those put options may uh, may 10x and give you that negative correlation that you need. So that, there are those uh, uh, those kinds of um, uh, those kinds of approaches that that have been tried by people like Mark Spitznagel very very successfully. Uh, then mm-hmm. there is this uh, permanent portfolio uh, by Harry Brown and and others. So they they recommend owning. Uh, a set of assets. So I, I think what Harry Brown recommends is put 25% in uh, commodities like gold, uh, put 25% of the portfolio in cash, and then another 25% in bonds and another 25% in stocks or some, something like that. And so the, the idea is that if you if you get inflation, uh, then uh, uh, if, if, if you get inflation, then the commodities will do really well. Uh, yes. But if you, get, mm-hmm. if you get deflation, then cash will do really well. Uh, right. And if you get growth and so on, uh, well, if you, if you get deflation, the, the bonds will also do well. And and mm-hmm. if you get growth, uh, then the stocks will do well. So so there's always some part of your portfolio that is doing well. And if you constantly right. rebalance out of that part of the portfolio into some other part, which is maybe not so not doing so well, then over mm-hmm. a period of time, uh, you you may get a very good return uh, just just because of the rebalancing. You're constantly selling. Uh, expensive stuff and buying cheap stuff. So over a period of time, this can work to your advantage. So so there are these approaches as well. Then we also okay. did an episode on the cockroach portfolio. Uh, yeah, by, I, I, they, I, was there. I heard that. Word. Right. Mm-hmm. So so those those guys have some thoughts about how to use volatility instruments to uh, so, so uh, trading VIX futures and things like that to achieve right. exactly this kind of negative correlation. So so there are mm-hmm. lots of approaches out there. You have to kind of decide which one. Okay. And if if you're really interested in okay. doing this uh, in in the short term, if if you're only interested in the long term, then you may be perfectly okay just dollar cost averaging into an index fund, and that right. just that diversification may be more than enough for you without the negative correlation. Okay. All right. That's great. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Okay. I think that is all the questions that we had. Thank you all very much for showing up. I enjoyed this session uh, quite a bit. And uh, let's meet next week. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.